Welcome back to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the suffering and struggles of life. Good to be back with you, Father Michael, again for another podcast. Would you please remind everyone where they can find us online and on social media? Yes, absolutely. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And, of course, you can find On the Battlefield on our main hosting site, Anchor FM, uh, which shares out over uh, iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and, of course, on social media, uh, especially on Facebook, On the Battlefield Podcast, uh, where we share other related content. And we do read your messages. So uh, please continue to reach out to us. Let's make it a dialogue rather than a monologue. And we appreciate everyone who writes in because we've gotten a lot of good food for thought and had uh, a lot of great conversation. So thank you for that. So do find us online, do reach out. And uh, if you enjoy what you hear with us, please do share it out with as many as possible. Thank you. Like a perpetual, like in a perpetual emotional debt, like you're always in debt, you're always behind. Thank you, Father Michael. So today we're going to talk about settling. You know, it's common for us in our modern context to say never settle for anything. Don't don't settle for less than what you deserve or what's owed to you. But when we live our life as Americans and we become materialists and we live our lives chasing after material goods and having all the things that are owed to us, and we have those things, they can be taken away from us. And we've really become nothing more than materialists and privatized the wholeness of our being. You know, it, it because it robs us of the transcendent component of our human status, right? Because we as human beings are physical and spiritual. And when we become materialists and chase after all of these things that we're not supposed to settle for, we've settled for something less than what we were intended to be in perfection. So by becoming American materialists, we rob ourselves of the full image of God that he purposed us to reflect. And that is what we are going to talk about today. Um, so, Father Michael, having heard that lead-in, um, we've had some pretty good talks about this and just all the different ways that we as Americans be, enjoy being materialists and all the ways that we privatize or the, the different ways that we diminish the image of God in our lives and and not even on purpose. I mean, it's not, not like we're saying to the people listening that like we hate you or we hate ourselves because we've fallen victim to this diabolical manner of life, but but that it's real and we need to be cognizant of it and and choose to live in the fullness of God's image and to see the fullness of God's image in others rather than just settling for something that we weren't created for. Yeah, and, and the, the, you know, keep in mind that when we say the image and likeness of God, we have to be very clear. We're not talking about any collection of attributes. There is no attribute that makes you the image and likeness of God because there's no threshold. There's no gradation of it within human person. So the image and likeness of God is not your intellect. 
if it were, people of a greater intellectual capacity would be more human than others. And that's unthinkable. We're all equally human. It's also not the stages of your physical development, because then someone at peak physical state would be more human than someone who is incapacitated or just malformed or, or still forming or on their way out of life. And no, the, the regardless of your uh, regardless of your your physical uh, capabilities, you're equally human or um, or even the capacity to use and process memory and function. All those things can be debilitated through disease or age or, or violence and accident. Um, none of these none of those attributes and or and it's not communication because we find that animals can communicate. And people have different people have different levels of skill in communicating. So again, that would be a problem because then you'd have to say some people are more human than others. Rather, from the very first cell at fertilization to the end of life, even with someone who is perhaps mute and uh, intellectually very disadvantaged, you're still equally human as someone who lives in a more ideal situation with a more ideal body and a more ideal intellect. Well, why? Because what makes us the image and likeness of God is simply the fact that we are human. That's it. God said human beings are his image and likeness. And no matter what state, no matter what condition they find themselves in, no matter uh, what uh, excess or defect they may have, they are still equally the image and likeness of God. It doesn't matter how great or how small you are. It's there 100% period stop. It's not a collection of attributes. It's not something that can be measured. It's just simply a status that God has conferred upon us because he said so, because he loves us. Okay, that's it. That's it. And what does it mean to be his image and likeness? Well, I mean, we do certainly, because we're his sons, we do certainly share uh, in certain characteristics of his life. Because we're his image and likeness, we're called to share in his life. So as Second Peter says, do you not know that you are called to be partakers of the divine nature? So um, in that, God exists even within himself as community, community in unity, diversity and unity, a community of love that is not confused, but not separate. We call that the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons in perfect unity, distinct, but not separate. And we know who they are in relation to one another. That's how they're known. We know who the Son is the Son because of how he relates to the Father and vice versa. So our existence as his image and likeness will also be known in relationship. That's why we're called to be a body. That's why we're called to be community. Even when they're created male and female, that's a community. So guess what? Um, the best way to stagnate that is to divide it up and to make it about things. So the devil, whose name means, diabolos, means the one who rends asunder, one who throws between and divides. The first thing he's going to do is create that division to where community breaks down. And we're going to locate the identity on things. So like, like look at how many of how many of our parishes, the life of the body, the life of the community can be compromised and split up because this side wants to change the pews and that side doesn't. This side wants red carpet. That side wants green carpet. This side wants normal windows. This side wants stained glass. And because I didn't get my way or because we took down the thing, the stuff, the objects that my grandfather put up, 
well, I'm not coming here to church anymore. So where was the locus of identity? It was on the material. It was on the stuff. It was on the things. It was on the place and the items and the objects, but not the people, not the community, not the body. We overvalue the objects. And in doing so, we devalue the image and likeness of God, which is the only thing that has objective value. Um, you know, it, it, and, and it's it's funny because like even pop culture, and let's not derail it, but even pop culture will recognize this, right? Because you had that, uh, the, the, the last Thor movie where, you know, Odin says to Thor, he's like, Asgard is a place, not a, I'm sorry. He said, he said, where Odin says to Thor, uh, Asgard isn't a place, it's a people. It was never a place. It was always a people. So it was the body. It wasn't the planet. He's like, you can destroy the planet. That's not Asgard. Asgard is wherever we happen to set up shop. Well, imagine, imagine that. Like if we said, well, but how many of our parishioners look and say, our church, and they mean the brick and mortar, not us, the body. And as priests, we have to get them out of that mindset because it's so poisonous that once you allow that evil leaven of materialism to creep in and you think the church is the brick and mortar and not the body of Christ gathered around the Eucharist, it will poison the well in other ways. So settling can do two pernicious things. It, it can either... Uh, cause us to define ourselves by that which we're trying to attain or cause us to identify our self-worth or the purpose of our life with not settling, which means that we're, we're always in pursuit of the next best thing. It's like chasing after keeping up with the Joneses sort of thing. So this idea of not settling just puts us into a perpetual cycle of always trying to have more and more because we're not going to settle for less no matter what we have to have the best we have to be doing the sense, thing consistently and constantly yeah i think that so what we're talking about really right and i I'm, I'm with you so what we're talking about really is this idea that what we've made the condition for our own satisfaction and and the ultimate uh determiner of our our worth and our satisfaction and um, our value has been misplaced and we've made it into things. So rather than, so we, we look and we say, well, you know, don't settle for less. And very often when we say don't settle for less, we mean, you know, to, to don't settle for a career that you're not excited about. And there's a certain degree of, of, of and again, with all these statements, there's a certain degree of truth, right? Um, you know, don't settle for less. So you want to be financially in a good place. I mean, there's a certain degree of truth to that. Or don't settle for a career that you hate. There's a certain degree of truth for that. Um, you know, you know, it, should you provide your family with decent things? Well, you know, don't settle for less. Or for a spouse that you truly do want to be married to, you know, don't settle. Again, the part of what makes this so pernicious is it's not entirely untrue. You know, looking for meaningful work objectively, like just by itself, the statement to look for meaningful work, that's a good thing. Like that's not a bad thing. Um, or to try to provide um, a decent, enjoyable existence for your family, for the people who depend on you, um, you know, to give them a, a, a – 
you know, a life that is, is pleasant and enjoyable again by itself, not a bad thing. Um, but in each of these cases, what we've done is we've taken something that is relatively good and we've overvalued it. We've overemphasized what is otherwise a relative value. So we've absolutized what is otherwise a relative value. So then, then because each of those things, right? Um, you know, you may, you may or may not. Like what, what can sit, what defines career success, for instance, um, and not settling. Like I knew uh, a couple back in Florida, right? And uh, they were they're a very happy couple, very nice couple, raised great kids. And uh, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give away who they are, but I hope they don't mind me using them as an example. So the uh, the lady of the house worked a job that she was really excited about. The man of the house successfully worked a job. They kept the lights on. He wasn't necessarily excited about it, but it provided for his family well enough and provided for his family stably enough, and he was happy to do it. Well, so did he have career satisfaction? Well, I think from his perspective, he would say yes, because it did what he needed it to do. He needed that employment to provide well enough for his family to give them a life that they could enjoy as a unit. He wasn't looking for the employment to give meaning and an end in telos, to give a meaning and definition to his life. He wasn't defining his life by that employment. He was defining his life by the family and this funded it well enough. So even though the employment wasn't the thing that, um, that was, you know, principal, was he satisfied? Yeah, actually he was. Right. So what is career satisfaction? Well, it wouldn't be in this case, it wouldn't be chasing the things like I didn't climb high enough on the ladder and get the promotions. Like, did this do the thing I needed it to do within its relative set of goods? Well, actually, it did. What is the objective good that's greater than this? Having an enjoyable life with my family. And it did that. Uh, and, And I really honestly, I. I often, when I when my own mentality goes unbalanced, I like to think about them because I think that was such a healthy set of priorities. And it was a really beautiful way of looking and saying, it's not that, like if, if the things in that sentence had been out of order or out of balance, um, it could have been settling. But because of where he placed the emphasis and how they ordered their priorities, there was no settling involved. But that's also not a materialist perspective because it wasn't about the stuff. But that that existence outside of oneself that is achieved through having, uh, you can see very clearly why that would have been something that the ancient Greeks didn't particularly see as excellence because it it draws oneself into hedonism, into self-absorption, where the, where the process of getting in order to have incites all sorts of evil passions within me it, it, because it, it, it causes me to have jealousy or envy. It, it causes me to see in the thing, the object of my desire, 
something of more value than my own personal well-being or the person in the society next to me. It, it devalues relationships because it puts the locus of my desiring on an object rather than the good or the benefit of the other or my desiring on the divine. And this was completely yeah. despised by the ancients. The idea that I would be so self-absorbed is ridiculous and evil. Right, because the ideal, not the idea, but the ideal of never settling puts you into that perpetual indebtedness because <clears throat> there's always something more beyond what I have because I can't settle for what I have. And then the other thing that I mentioned is it, it also... Very sneakily, we can define ourselves by not settling, of what it is that I'm not settling for, or have some association of my being, that the image of God is then tied up, becomes tied up in the not settling. Like who I am is becomes part of that chasing, which is, I don't think we recognize all the time when we're doing that. No, we don't. But where, where I think people get it, it, it see, the, the two verbs that you're using most of the time in talking about the settling versus what you shifted to at the end, that's the key. So it, it's most of what we talk about settling, we talk about having, you know, it's the having and the having sets us into a cycle of debt. The having sets us into this impoverished mentality where I don't have, I, I need more of this, I need that. And the more we do that, the locus of identity is more and more outside of ourselves. Um, and it's in Luke's gospel, Christ says, the kingdom of God is within you. Like, so it, 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 we're, we're meant to locate our identity in God. But, you know, it, it's very interesting. So in Genesis, human beings are given their identity. They are the image and likeness of God, period, stop. And, and we're going to flesh out what that means. But that's re that that's that's recapitulated in John at the beginning of John's gospel where he says to those who believed he gave the power the power to become sons of God. And, and and that's actually sons of God is not just like male children of God. That is a technical term within theology. But he gave them the power to become sons of God. I mean, this is our this is our identity. And, and so what this constant indebtedness of not settling in the wrong sense really pushes us towards is locating our identity elsewhere beyond uh, elsewhere outside of all of that and everything else outside of all of that is flimsy and it will not hold up and you can't grasp it forever so it's very fleeting moments of temporary satisfaction uh you know, I, there, there has been, it's, it's funny. There has been a, uh, I don't want to make that comparison, but there, there, this theme of this theme of, a, 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 of the constant pursuit of not settling leading into a self-destructive hedonism that ultimately becomes hellish in nature uh, is actually a theme that's uh, that runs underneath a great deal of the horror genre. It, it's it's funny uh, that that even even in genres that are that in in media, and let's not go down this road, but even in genres in media that can hardly be considered godly, we 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 kind of get a sense that um, the over obsession with possessing, 
is, uh, is something that kills the soul and drives us to behave as, as monsters versus we talked about being the image and likeness of God. So having versus being. And when you're looking at the ancient Greek philosophers, well, they talked about the highest good within the highest pursuit of humanity was aditi or excellence. In other words, how does how does how does the human being exemplify the highest qualities that a human being can exemplify? In other words, it was a question of being. So when we're talking about truly um, truly satisfactory systems or, or systems that approximate to get closer, um, you you end up discussing less having and much more being, and. Unfortunately, uh, in a culture as ours is that is driven towards the consumer, the default language is having and being is very quickly neglected. And it, this sort of locating oneself in the material, in, in the objects of our desiring is, is sneaky because it, it manifests itself in a couple of really primary ways as far as I can see. Because it can manifest in a in a broader, more general objectification, and you know, it's like as long as I take care of my family, I take care of my house, and we always have the nice house, and we have the nice car, and we have the nice things, and everybody thinks that we have all of these things, and then my value, like you mentioned toward the beginning, that husband didn't find his value necessarily in having all the nicest things, but in being able to provide that which was necessary and good for his family. But the minute we we find that objectify having all the things that everybody else thinks that we should have, or that we think that they think that we should have, we we've done this sort of settling, and then worse, I think, is when we, or equally as bad, something that is more insidious to me is is when not only do we find the pleasure and the objective good of our life and our and our being in a thing is when we associate that thing with our being. Um, a good example of that is like if I say I'm a motorhead, I'm a gearhead, and then Father Michael says, "You know what? Cars are stupid," and I say to Father Michael, "No, you're stupid," because I've allowed my my longing for the thing or my desire for the thing to define my being and have associated a great deal of my being and the image that God put into me with a very small part of something that I like. And when he accuses cars of being stupid, it's not an accusation against cars at that moment. It's an accusation against me because he's devalued something that I've associated my being with. And we see that throughout our society where we yeah, actually how often thought, do we say, how often do we what how often do yeah how often do we say some version of like i don't know who i'd be without or without this who am i what am i and we have some existential oh, yeah how often does that occur i mean pretty often but this is that that idea of settling it's like and not settling necessarily but not understanding the image of God within me, like somehow the image of God has to be so specified, that it has to be so specific, that God in me is this specific thing. And 
that is where I find the locus of my being, not in God, not in my humanity, but in that specific desiring or that thing that I've chosen to associate myself, a different community, a very specific community that has specific shared agreed on ideals, not the greater whole of humanity, which more perfectly offers to us a shared understanding and image of God. Yeah, well, you know, and it's, yeah, I'm with you. It's, we're really getting, you know, it, what what makes it so pernicious is that, again, it over-absolutizes partial subjective value. So, like, again, like, there, there is, there is some, uh, there is some subjective, right? There is some value to being a, a gearhead, man. Like in a society full of cars, knowing your way around a motor is a pretty valuable skill to have, and it's a cool hobby. Like there, there's nothing, you know. Like there, there's objective good. Like there's some, there's a relative good there, um, you know. And and same thing of like you know, or wanting to build a successful business, or wanting to. Um, give your kids some nice things like there's a certain amount of subjective good uh, or, or like to bring it back to my example earlier from parishes wanting to make sure that the temple is beautiful and gives you glory to God and is functioning well um, is good. Like it's subjectively good that see, that's the thing. That's, that's what makes parsing this out so tricky for people once they get uh, responding emotionally because the knee jerk of saying the knee jerk reaction say like, well, I mean what we're just supposed to not care about the windows or what I'm supposed to let my kids starve or, Oh, I can't have any fun or hobbies. And no, it's not that other extreme knee jerk reaction. It's saying that we've overvalued something beyond the limits where it's healthy, where it's proper. Now it's the source yeah. and the locus of your existence of your yes. being. It's like yeah. how do I understand the core component of my existence of my being? Is it the rock and roll? Yeah. Is it being a met- is it being a metalhead? Is it being a ge- a car guy? Do I find the value and the source of my joy and life is is the community? they're the most important thing maybe maybe the that community is really really good and it's really really important but is that community based on community and a love for each other and a desire for the good for you or is it because we share a common identity based in a thing that we have in common because will i still be a part of that community will you still love me as much as if i'm not shooting heroin if I'm not sitting at the bar with you, are we going to be this tight? Are we going to have the communion of alcoholism? Are we going to have the communion of talking about Cummins diesel engines, which I really like because I have one in my pickup truck? Is that is that the common bond? Or is the common bond your benefit, your well-being, your good found in the transcendence of God alone? Exactly. And, and so like that's where – and. That's where if we've rightly ordered these things, you know, because that's it's like what Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. Put things in the right order and they'll be fine. So like, um, you know, you may enjoy being a gym rat and, um, you know, injury can keep you out of there. Well, 
I mean, if that's if that's it, then you're in trouble. But if it's like, well, I enjoy being a gym rat because I enjoy, um, you know, I I enjoy making the most out of, of health and the function of the body. And, and, you know, scripture says to present your bodies as a, 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 to glorify God in your bodies and to present them as a living sacrifice. So maybe now I can't work out. Maybe I will, you know, maybe I'll, I'll talk and mentor to some younger people so that, you know, help them out with their health or write a book or, uh, and then what do I really, then, you know, maybe I don't write about working out anymore. Maybe I, I start to go, you know, what I really enjoy is teaching people. What I really enjoy is talking to people sharing my knowledge or sharing my stories. And over the course of time, it's not about what you have, but it's about what you're, you've had blessings of, from God. And then how are you sharing that out in communion with the rest of the body? And suddenly it's like, yeah, maybe you haven't been able to lift a weight for 30 years, but it was never really about bringing the weight up and down. Suddenly it was about, okay, I've been blessed with this. I've, I've recognized God in it. And now we're sharing that out. And, you know, even like, even to on your deathbed, maybe you bequeath some of your money to, uh, you know, to a, a youth fitness center or something. Well, it's like, yeah, why? You're sharing out the blessings of God. So when it becomes less about what I have and possess and more about who, uh, who I share that with in communion in the body, who I am in communion with the rest of the body, it becomes a very different picture. And it also becomes a picture that can't really be stopped because when we're looking at that, it's like, well, even if you take away the thing, you didn't take, you didn't rob me. You didn't diminish me. I'm not less. It's just now things look a little different. And again, you know, and I think that's, I think that's a place that's where the devil really likes to sow his fear that who will you be without this thing? If you don't settle for this thing, you're nothing. And that's, that's a real threat. I think, I think it's a real threat, not that it doesn't affect women as well, but I think especially as men in our culture where we're invited to locate our identity in functionality, into what we provide, into our bank account, into our place in the business hierarchy. Um, there's a very, you know, we, we, we have a very particular threat on that. And it's like, I, I think a much stronger man is able to say, no, I, that's not the source of my identity at all. Even if I am successful in business or in my hobbies or my pursuits or in providing financially, that's not what makes me me. Um, and the, the thing that makes that so evil is because we, we associate the entirety of the good. All of the good is then found in that one place and then we associate the entirety of our being with that one thing providing providing the best and providing becoming, the money yeah and by doing that you become willing to discard all of the other goods for the sake of that right thing. because those aren't real because i actually don't identify all of those other things as being good but the only true good is this one part of my life that, that's why I mentioned the gearhead thing, because it's like it, it's the privation of God's image. It's, it's taking the entirety of, of God's goodness and then identifying all that I am in the, in the locus of this one thing. And by doing that, 
we we get we have this really warped and false understanding of the world, why we're in the world, the things that we're doing, and it becomes it becomes really selfish. It becomes really hedonistic because because then it's up because then in order for me to continue to have my being the way that I understand my being and want my being to exist then revolves around this constant settling for less. I'm constantly, constantly settling for less and less because more and more is being found outside of me where it doesn't belong because I keep getting further and further from God. And you see that in our society. I mean, look how miserable yeah, some and- people are who live in their million-dollar mansions in these beautiful neighborhoods that they think that they need to live in with the Porsche parked in the driveway and all the stuff. They've got all the things, and they're completely miserable. How is that possible if they never settled? How is that possible? It should be impossible. Yeah. Right. It, yeah, and and not only that, but it does it does the exact it has the exact effect of over isolating us as well. Because again, once I have to devalue my relationship with you for the thing that I possess, which by which I've defined my life, the more we do that, the more we become isolated. And so like suddenly our spouse and our kids, um, you know, they become less, they become relativized to um, career or to the promotion or to the company. And because, because they're higher value relationships, they're more difficult to maintain. It is easier. I mean, let's not lie. It is easier to get quick gratification from professional accomplishment than it is to have a consistently gratifying personal relationship. Because all you have to do, because everything you have to do in the professional realm is mostly block checking. It's most like, I okay, you've got this stack of reports. I completed the reports. Good job. It's not personal. It's like, here are the items. I do the items. Good job. It's very easy to get quick gratification because material, it's like, it's just that material that boiled down to the task. Um, Whereas personal relationships, it's time and conflict management and the inner management of resentment. Like, do we want resentments or do we want to be happy? And if we allow resentments to come in, how much does it cloud over all the other moments? And it's all of this messy stuff. And it's frustrating because you may be on board, you may be in the right headspace to get things on track and the person, the other person in the relationship isn't. And so you clash. And then when they're in the right headspace, you're now you're angry and resentful. So you're in the wrong headspace. It's so much easier to just get all the reports knocked out on time, you know, but ultimately what does Christ say about eternity? The scriptures, it's funny. So Paul's epistle says that Christ, it, it, that calls Jesus Christ, the one in whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now I, I haven't read any commentary on that, There's very little commentary on that. But what that tells you is that family exists in heaven. There are family, he says, every family in heaven and on earth, which means they exist, which means this web of relationships that we have called love and family and friends exists in some form into eternity. How does it exist? What does it look like? Because obviously we're not having new children into eternity. Um, We don't know what that means. We don't know what it looks like. But we do know that the same God who calls himself father and chooses to relate in familial terms, the same God who then also calls himself son, again, choosing to relate in familial terms, calling us to be his sons, relating in familial terms, 
says that he's the one in whom every family on earth and in heaven are named. So then how can we not say that that web of relationships within the image and likeness of God, which turns that familial thing into a living icon of the most holy trinity, which is what it's supposed to be, is not the most important and highest objective value. It's just the most difficult to pursue. That's all. It is definitely the highest objective value. It is also the most maddening and difficult to deal with. Um, and so the devil's constant temptation is to divide up and to atomize and to isolate and say, well, my, I was a stranger to my kids. Damn it, I was the best employee this company ever had. Eliminate the political overtone of what I'm about to say, but this is really nothing more than identity politics, right? You can't remove the politicization of it because the word politics is in it, but how do I identify? With what do I identify? Do I identify with the greater family, the family of God that he instituted? That he instituted through his Christ when he said, this is my bride? I mean, it goes beyond family. It's, it's a unity of one living organism that can't function outside of itself. I mean, it's that tight now. It's not Father Michael and his family. It's or Father Joseph and his family, a bunch of different contingent parts of this one unit, but a unit that cannot be divided from itself without, you know what I mean? A body properly understood functions together in unison and in harmony. But if I don't identify myself with that body, if I don't identify myself with the person of Jesus Christ and his intended order, and we instead go with the identities that are provided to us through society, whether it be our re religious identity, the, the parish or the congregation that we identify ourselves with, or the theology that, it, that we identify ourselves with, or the sexuality that we identify ourselves with, the work that we identify with, the music, the whatever, you name it. We have all of these different identities that we identify with, but when we do that, we privatize God and we eliminate him from the picture and we place the entire concept and well-being of our soul in something outside of God in the material world and in so doing harm not only ourselves, but the, the micro-community in which we, we now work in. It's very easy to get kicked out of a out of a group if you no longer identify with what they identify with. It's not so easy to get kicked oh, out yeah. of Christianity. Oh, yeah. You don't get kicked out of Christ unless you don't identify with with that kind of perfect, holy, eternal communion with Him and with each other. I mean, this is big picture macro stuff. But what we tend to do through demonic forces and our own short sightedness is identify with such micro atomized groups that being in or out is always very fragile and nerve wracking. And we just keep fragmenting well, more and, and more and more and more. Well, and, well, and you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't get kicked out of Christianity. You can leave, you can leave the covenant. You don't get kicked out of it, but you can leave and you can come back. Um, and, and so much so that like, I mean, even the final moment, right? Like the one thing you don't see any patristic writing on, um, because there's no, no one knows 
that final moment before the soul exits the body. I mean, from Christ's perspective, from a really heartfelt someone, someone really to heartfelt turn him, turn to him. That final moment is enough for Christ to rescue that soul if it's sincere. And nobody knows what happens in that final moment. Nobody, nobody has a clue. Uh, that is a mystery between the soul and God. And what might Christ work in an individual's soul for their salvation in that moment? Only he in his justice knows. Um, justice in the Old Testament doesn't mean fairness. Mishpat in Hebrew doesn't mean fairness. It means the web, it means the web of relationships that holds everything together, all those things functioning in harmony as God intended them. So when everything is functioning according to its proper order as God intended it, the way that it's intended to function, and it's in proper relationship with everything else, that's justice. So like when we're talking about justice in the Old Testament, it's are things functioning the way God intended them to function in relationship to everything else, including him? That's justice, not fairness. Has nothing to do with fairness. Has nothing to do with righting wrongs. It has to do with are we relating to God and one another and everything else the way that he intended in every sense. So what's interesting is when people over uh, atomize, you know, how they identify, especially it always ends up going to some excess that involves sin, that involves the departure from the covenant. Always. Always. Why? Even 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 workaholism, even relativizing, uh, even over absolutizing my job. Why? Because you neglect your family, you neglect your kids. That's the first covenant that God's going to ask you about. And guess what? You got to work seven days a week because you got to get ahead. And even if you work Six days a week, you work six days a week, but you work 90 hours, too tired to get up for church on Sunday. Kids never see you go to church on Sunday. Mom takes them. Now they believe that men don't go to church. I mean, that so that's who the daughter will look for, and that's who the boys will want to be. I mean, like, it could be anything. There's always, it always leads to an imbalance that leads to sin. And what's interesting is if someone points that out, not only will we stick with the sin, but we'll defend it. Well, saying, well, oh, that's okay. That's fine. God will understand. I can, no, this is, well, that's, you know what? That's what I'm doing. So we'll take this thing and we'll say, you know, going down this road has the potential to break the covenant between you and God into eternity. And we'll look at that and go, yeah, and I'm doing it anyway. That's fine. That's fine. I'd rather have this. I have that. That's what I got to have. I mean, what that tells you is, we really didn't take the first part of that sentence seriously. You really, either you don't really believe in God or you don't really believe this will separate you or you don't really believe what God says about himself. But because what I'm doing we, is good. But what I'm doing is a, an objective good because I'm doing whatever, right? I'm loving, I'm caring, I'm, you know, you can use whatever adjective you want to use to defend yourself because it's a subjective good that we come to associate with objective goodness. Because how could God reject me in the end if I went to work every day and provided for my family? How could God possibly reject me in the end for showing love? Well, yeah, and and that's and and there what has happened is you've over you've over uh, overemphasized partial good so like 
for uh, because I, you know, one thing that's been maligned a bit in in certain scholarly circles, the idea that Greek has different type words for different types of love has been like kind of overplayed, like they're completely separate ideas, and it's neither of the extremes. So there, I mean, there do exist different words for different types of love. Even in modern Greek, you can see, for example, the word for familial love is storge. And you can see in modern Greek, people say to their kids, storgose, you know, especially like grandparents might say, storgo, I, I love you in that familial sense. It gets used. Uh, and you can say to fall in love, you can say, to, if you say you fell in love, you say, uh, erotistica, you know. Uh, I, I fell into, I became imbued with eros, erotistica. I became, you know, erosized, if, if as it were. Um, is, so it's like these words do exist, but there's also significant overlap, right? So they, they get used because they're different concepts, but they don't get used so separately that there's no overlap. So like even in Spanish, when we speak Spanish, there's um, there's two different words to express love. Say amar, the verb amar means typically means deep romantic romantic love, and then you use the word querer, which is usually to want. You can use for lesser love, for friendship love. So you would tell your friend te quiero, but you would tell your spouse te amo. But there is some overlap, so you can also say to your children te amo. You can, or when you talk about in scripture, we talk about the way God loves humanity. You use amar. Well, God doesn't have a romantic love for humanity, but it expresses that there is this deep, deep love that that goes beyond the casual. Um, and so, like, again, to say, you know, so it, and, and that overvaluing of a certain type of love goes to the heart of those two examples that you just put out, which I think we can expand on in the next episode. So, like, if I am yeah. so over-obsessed with providing well for my family, that can be an excess of storge. We could say, okay, I, I storgo. You know, I love my, I, I love my, fa- my family. But that excess there can lead to a neglect of the one thing needful, which is time, which is to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and to be his image and likeness. And the same thing, you know, while romantic love can be good to overemphasize that and make every other type of love uh, secondary and ersatz in the face of it um, can lead us to devalue the overwhelming bulk of human relationships. Um, what I want us to talk about next time, I mean, the, 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 you know, the deep and abiding friendship was the most treasured relationship in for most of history. And it's certainly the one you can have more of. We will not have, some people will never have a romantic relationship. But we can all have this deep and abiding philia, this deep and abiding friendship. And Christ says that no greater love is a man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And so it means so much more than just buddies. And it's the most devalued type of love in our modern world. We've overvalued the fleeting eros of romantic love, which comes and goes and which some people never experience. And we devalue the ones that we can all experience at any time. Uh, and so uh, it's, again, the atomization comes from this, this devaluing of the objective thing and this overvaluing of the subjective. And, and I think like we're, we're leading into the teaser for what we kind of hope to end up on next time, but it's, um, it, it leads to some really terrible things. I and mean, you can see just right. with that example, 
how starting with an overvalued type of love can lead us to neglecting some really important things that we will regret both here and in the East to come. And the thing that I see that overlaps between, uh, uh, how is it, Amar and Gamo? Um, forgive me, my, my Spanish is so rusty. What, the, the what were you Spanish, trying to say? Like if I say te amo, or um, that means I love you in a romantic or deep way, right? And what was the other one, the friendship love in Spanish? Te amo. All right, so How? te quiero. So it uses te the quiero. verb querer. Te querer. Quiero. That was the so querer. querer is, that's the verb. That's the verb. Because in Spanish, you give querer. verbs in the infinitive. So te sure. quiero is I love you as a friend. Te amo is I love you as a But the verb is I amar. Now, most of the time, querer is to want or to desire. Right. That's but my point. That, that's what I couldn't remember. But, the, but there is a, you said there's an overlap between querer and amar. Yes. And what yes. is the overlap? The desire, the depth of relationship. Yeah. So, and, that, and that relates to this podcast, not to the one that we're giving teasers for that will come in the future. But where is the desire of my soul. Well, where, yeah, where is that us. desire? Is my desire is, for God and communion with him? Aha, you see, that's my point. That's my point. Where is my treasure? Is my treasure found in the triune God and in his kingdom? Or is my treasure found in providing? Is my treasure found in, well, hey, Look at all the things that I do to prove that I'm really great. Or where is my treasure? Is it in my pickup truck? Is it in these kind of spurious relationships that I've created outside of God? Like, but where is the desire of my heart? That is like the question. Is like what what is that link that I have to the thing that I'm not settling for? Is the not settling truly well, divine? And not only that, but like. Not? Yeah. Well, and th that's the other thing. I mean, like, look at what Christ says, you know, store up for yourself treasure in heaven where rust and, rust and moth do not uh, invade and destroy. Well, like kind of kind of a, a, as our own reflecting that this the spiritual life is a is a two way radio. So, like, what happens if we've stored up treasures in hell? Like, really, like we, we've 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 overemphasize the atomization and the self-gratification and the self-glorification and we've stored up our treasures in hell where do you go to collect i mean you know life and worship is 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 you're creating communion with your god you know, what if you know if that's that's the god you've chosen to worship i mean you have as his image and as as yeah. the true God's image and likeness, you have the freedom to leave the covenant if you like, in which case you become an image of what you have chosen to image. Um, now, and what is the identity of that image, right? How, what is the identity of the image that you've created for yourself? Yeah. Or where is I, the I, image found in the identity that you've created yourself? Right. And, and it's, and, 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 you know, you can put up the facade, the devil's really great with facades. You can put up the facade and say, oh, this is about community. This is about love. This is about this, this is about that. But threaten the real core thing, right? 
like um like like say 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 you're talking about certain romantic relationships that are not scriptural say hey you can be friends but no physical intimacy now you've got a fight on your hands why because the real core thing was threatened it wasn't about the friendship it wasn't about the closeness it's the real core thing now but i mean you can and you can make now here's the real kicker because that needs to get turned around because when we're talking about christian marriage christian marriage is also not about uh, simple physical gratification so what happens so what happens in a christian marriage with uh with where say illness or injury removes that component of life you know you get into a car crash and your spouse is paralyzed from the neck down well right you're still called to love them the same that core that and suddenly if you're like well how can i love them without now you've got a problem because where was the core thing was it in your gratification or was it because you truly cherish this human being you see, like it's it, it's it, it is a litmus test that if we're applying across the board should cause everybody, everybody that, that, that to to really reflect and kind of repent and say, I'm not living the gospel as ideally as I might. I, I, you know, I mean, really, it, if we're looking and saying that this this real core Christian mode of approaching relationships in communion it's something that we all have to look at and say, and we ought to say, um, you know, we, we all have stuff to repent of and we could approach this better. Uh, because I mean, you know, I'll be honest, like, I don't think I would perfectly pass that test. Like I, I, I say that example to my own condemnation, like, really, could I handle that challenge? Really? I, I, I sincerely hope I'm never put to that test. I, I think I might do it and complain the whole time. Which is terrible. Which is terrible. Um, so it's like so that that becomes a, a a a a moment of having to look inward and say, all right, where are my where are my locuses of value off? But see if and 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 the yeah and, where yeah where do where I find I, value? Where, and where is it off? And and how can we move that needle in the direction towards the kingdom of God? Because that's where the ultimate value really is. For anybody, it really doesn't matter what the details of your life are. The kingdom of God, being his image and likeness, being his sons, is your ultimate value. That's it for all of us. And what he wants from us is to pursue that with a wholehearted, single-minded focus. And when we do, despite the fact that we may fear not acquiring the things that we think we want, we will instead have satisfaction beyond our wildest dreams. So like there were, there are early theologians who I, I'm not a fan of Augustine of Hippo, but uh, he does have a good quote where he says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And he was right about that. You know, he's wrong about a lot of things, but he's right about that. That every other locus of value and identity will prove unsatisfying until our hearts rest in God. And then, once they do, we're good regardless of the circumstances. Like St. Paul says, I have learned the secret to being satisfied under every circumstance, in good health and in poor health, in good treatment and poor treatment, whether in prison or free. And locating our identity on things, 
will not get us there. We'll do the opposite of getting us there. Yeah, and, and and you know, and the real the real message of the gospel is that 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 abides, that endures, um, and I think that's I think that's a great place to cap it off for today. I do that too. We're, that we that 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 service, that love, that ultimately that you know it, what, what's called in greek ecstasis you know ecstasy means to go out of oneself to go one's out of one's place and that's how god's love for us is described in in the fathers that his love is expressed in a going out of himself and, and and that perhaps that is why out of his love he creates others so that that love may be expressed more deeply and fully and known i i, I you know but that's the way our love functions. And, and so I think a good, a good beginning of the discussion of love and a good discussion uh, or, or capping off our discussion of where we locate value, be where, where, where do we find, where is that going out of my own self-interest in service and out of my own self and out of my own self-defined criteria of what I believe is good and convenient. Because if we're saying what is good and of proper service, if we're defining it by ourselves and our own preferences, then we're right back to being self-serving. Ultimately, it's no, the, the gospel, the triune God defines this, and ultimately therein we find our meaning in going out of, even if it's out of my preferences. You know, like I have, I have a very aggressive nature. And so going outside of my aggressive preferences to be gentle is that that's that's the ecstatic love of moving towards the gospel you know it's like okay the gospel says to you know what defines what defines love well the gospel so not here's the way i would like to do things no here's the way christ would do it and so he controls his own power and he's meek and kind where the other option exists. And so like for someone like myself, like, okay, the challenge there becomes, how do you be meek and kind where you, where you'd rather be a little more abrupt, but that's going out of oneself in better service. Um, and, and I think the challenge to our modern age is understanding that in doing that, you're not missing out in doing that. You're not settling. You're not losing yourself in doing that. You are, in fact, finding yourself beyond these superficialities that um, that masquerade as yourself. That's that's really the point we're getting at. So, so beyond superficialities, masquerade. So, yeah, let's let's cap it there. Uh, thank everyone again for tuning in. Do find us on Anchor FM, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Uh, and especially in our Facebook page on the Battlefield Podcast, where we also share related content. And we look forward to getting your messages and making this a dialogue. And we are currently discussing some uh, some off-week, uh, shorter offerings. So keep your eyes peeled. There may be uh, some, more, uh, some more frequency coming up, God willing, if we can get uh, that managed. So, uh, Father Joseph, give us a quick blessing. Right. And then let's send us on the road. I mean, where do you, in other, like you said, where do you find the depth of your worth? What does your heart desire?
Does your heart desire to be like God? You want a very clear image, what it looks, a simple image of what it looks like to be in God's image here in, in the flesh. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. There, there's, no, there's no self-seeking. There's nothing self-seeking there. It's, it's a willingness to suffer with and for the other. The good and the beautiful, the virtuous, the virtue is all found there. And that willingness to condescend and to suffer with and for the other. And that's a place that we can find our self-worth in. Because if I'm willing to suffer with and for Father Michael or Presbytera or my children, there, there's, a, there's genuine worth found there because it's deep abiding communion with God and them. And what can I provide materially that that can transcend or super, like to transcend that or to supersede it? I can't think of anything. I mean, okay, food is a nice thing to have, but what what is more valuable to the soul and to the person than to 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 know that there are relationships in your life that will never let you down, will never not have your back, and will always choose your well-being over my well-being. If that, if that shorter, more frequent offering is something that you want, please let us know. It would be a blessing to me to know that, that that's something that people would be finding value in, that, that extra content, because it is a considerable amount of time and work to do this. And if it would be a value, uh, we're happy to do it. And please let us know. Um, and so we'll close with prayer, Lord. Jesus Christ, our God, by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, guide us and keep us. And we, we ask and pray that as you promised to the disciples that what we lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Would you please loose upon us who are doing this podcast and those listening, loose your Holy Spirit and the power of your gracious love in our lives, that we would be transformed and manifest your greatness in our lives, that we would be overcomers and that we would be shining bright examples of your radiant love in the world. Uh, have mercy on us and we thank you for your divine love that you've showered upon us in the form of your son Jesus Christ. For to you is due all glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Father Michael, again, thank you. Uh, we love you and we'll see everyone out there on the battlefield.